Honk, honk. Not swinging. In honor of True Detective Season 2 being almost halfway over, who would you replace Vince Vaughn with? I'm Matt Patches, and I was going to go with Kevin James until just now when I thought of Burt Reynolds. But laying on that carpet, that bear carpet, and still saying all of Vince Vaughn's lines, but naked on a bear carpet. Ooh, I'm Dave with a seven. I'm going to say John Hamm, because you might have that extra level of Don Draper commentary. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to say Channing Tatum, because after Magic Mike XXL, there is no role that I would not rather be played by Channing Tatum. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 77 for Tuesday, July 7th, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, 2015. There isn't any Katie this week. She has the week <laughs> off. And uh, we're not going to take this time to read a review that is really positive about Katie because nobody left one of those. I think Aww. it's time. It's, I think it's time again. There isn't a really great Katie-centric review. She gets a lot of shout-outs, but there's no like love letter to Katie. Someone should stand up and, and write that love letter. I would appreciate she deserves that. It. And then we could picture her blushing as it's read aloud on the podcast because Aww. iTunes reviews are important to uh, spread the word about fighting in the war room, which there you really are listening are to. too many other movie podcasts that we need to dominate by having our reviews <laughs> go up now. Every yes. like for us, it's a vote against all of the garbage podcasts. Let, so me, let me rant a second. There's a okay. lot of movie podcast lists out there that have the same old, same old, and I'm wondering if anybody who compiles these lists listens to these podcasts when ours is never on these lists. And I'm like, we are fun. We are cool guys and a girl. And what's the deal? Why are we not on the list? Is it our format? Do you not like our format? We're too crazy. We just Dave have too many ideas. Format. Our format is immaculate. <laughs> I, am, I am obsessed with the format. Speaking no one, of... No one questioned Pollock when he was just throwing out paint. I think a lot of people questioned Pollock, historically. Oh. Well, looking back, everyone will see us as the true artists of the movie podcast form. Yeah, only in death. Let's start the show. The wife forgave the mistress, for she only entertained. The pain was gone the instant she cleared her throat to speak her name. That both of us must suffer from the same unending age. So, have you guys uh, been to a lot of like carnivals and amusement parks? Is that something people besides me do? Life? Yeah, probably. I mean, is it something that, like, you know, if there's a carnival in town, you're like, why not go check it out, get some fried food, see some in my teenage years, perhaps. Just as like some somewhere to hang out. I can't I can't remember the last local carnival I went to. Which I mean, how would you get to one? We don't have them here in New York, really. Although Central Park has its own little carnival every year, but no crazy rides. I, I'm not sure that uh, at my current 
place where I am in my life that I would see the appeal, but once upon a time. Well, I have this weird thing where not only do I enjoy going to, like, uh, carnivals to ride the weird carny rides, but, like, um, uh, larger theme parks as well. And then I become sort of obsessed with how they're put together to the point where, like, everything I become obsessed with, I end up watching YouTube videos late into the night of people filming their rides, whether it be roller coasters or walkthroughs at Halloween. But my favorite, by far, are the dark rides. Dark rides are rides where you're in some sort of cart uh, that's on a track, and it winds you through a dark space and um, either scares or scenes from movies or little dioramas are set up and uh, lit specifically to be used in the space. And the reason we're talking about it this week is uh, Disneyland just opened their refurbished Peter Pan's Flight, which is one of the uh, original dark rides that was open at the opening of Disneyland in the, the 50s and has sort of stuck around. But they refurbished it this year in honor of uh, Disney's Diamond Anniversary and added a whole What bunch is of- that? Has it been locked in the Disney vault until right now and... And once something gets locked in the Disney <laughs> vault, that shit never gets out. Oh, it's it's Diamond, like, the 60th, I believe. And they're pouring a whole bunch of new money into the oh, parks. Oh, I see. Uh, like, the, in, like the, the fifth anniversary was the wood anniversary, and now we're finally on the Diamond. Right, right, exactly. And they've been updating attractions, uh, the more classic attractions, in small ways uh, all year. There's, uh, you know, some refurbishments uh, in the Haunted Mansion that are very subtle. The uh, new Matterhorn has uh, sort of completely been redone in terms of there's more encounters with the Yeti and a new animatronic Yeti. and More uh, horn. Yeah, more horn. More horn and the Matterhorn. The Alice in Wonderland uh, ride, got, which is also a dark ride, uh, got refurbished uh, at the tail end of last year. And so they're sort of re-sprucing up the park. But why I'm so interested in Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland in particular is they took something which is a dark ride, which is I've even been on them at like uh, state fairs when they're uh, basically in the back of a truck, which is like a very simple mechanism to sort of combine some uh, low-grade theater techniques or techniques used in like backyard haunted houses uh, with a motion-controlled ride system. So you could sort of control when people are like facing your scare if you're going to have a werewolf jump out or as they progress through a narrative like in Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, uh, sort of how they see it. And it's been really interesting to see something that used to be this traditional carnival ride uh, type of theater being adapted with like the Disney access to the newest technology and where something like uh, Universal Studios or other theme parks or the recently closed Marvel Experience, which was a traveling theme park, but it turns out it's never going to make it out of Philadelphia because it's just not profitable, are relying on things like 3D or uh, interactivity with, like, you know, you shoot a gun at uh, oh, yeah, a whole bunch Toy of targets. Oh, yeah, the Toy Story Dark out. Ride has a, a gun. It does, but like the uh, Men in Black Dark Ride at Universal as well, where you're also shooting at, like, different alien things coming out of the Dark Ride. These... Um, Disneyland refurbishments have just applied the newest technology very subtly to the existing rides. So Peter Pan, it's like you fly through the Darling Nursery and then out over London and then over Neverland and then through a scene of Pan rescuing Tiger Lily and uh, Wendy from Captain Hook. And they've just done little things like made the animatronics more uh, expressive so that the kids are flying away with you now or moved Pan and uh, Hook closer together. They're still animatronics. They're still animatronics. And they've just gotten like new paint jobs 
uh, or for the instance of Neverland, all the water now has a LED strip uh, underneath the waterfall, so it looks like it's running, as does the lava, and then the lagoon and whatnot actually has uh, projections, so you could see the waves lapping up against the pirate ship. And it's just all very subtle things where you could do the opposite is like something like Universal Studios Transformers ride, which is like uh, they put 3D glasses on you and they put you in this ride vehicle. But like 5% of it is maybe set and the rest is just giant 3D screens that you're sort of scrolling through, which makes things really uh, malleable in terms of how you can update the ride. But just is less, I don't know, there's less actual theater craft in it. Can I, was it on this podcast uh, that I was talking about, and if it was, it was, it was like very recently, <laughs> that I was talking about um, this dark ride that I went on in Japan? No, I don't think it was on this podcast. No, I'd actually, no, yeah. I don't think it was. What, what are you uh, I, So I was in Japan, and I went on, uh, I think this was at this island on Odaiba, which is a little man-made island off of Tokyo, um, at this big theme park there that anyone who's been to Odaiba knows. Um, but it could have been somewhere else. But anyway, uh, and we went on a dark ride that was very forgettable. I, it was me and my friend. I can't remember what was in the dark ride. It's sort of irrelevant. It was not supernatural-based necessarily, with lots of things jumping out at you and such. Uh, and it was pretty cheesy. And the park was not especially crowded. It was actually very empty. It's all indoors, so you feel that emptiness. We got to the end of the ride, and the, the carousel, whatever you call it, the carriage comes out of the tunnel. And the guy whose job it is to uh, load you into the carriage and then lock the thing, whatever, pulled the gun on us. And it's literally the most frightening moment of our entire life. And that's part of the thing. It was like a, a you know, like a soft gun. Um, and it was part of the attraction. But the way they did it was that you didn't see the people ahead of you be loaded into the ride. You didn't see them exit. So This sounds like part- a Resident Evil for reals. Yeah, I mean, it must have been, because the story was all in Japanese, and maybe he was a character in it. I really wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> yeah. But for us, for me and my friend, it was just like, oh, we're in this ride, we're in this dark tunnel, things are jumping out. And then suddenly a man has a gun to our heads. <laughs> it was horrifying. Well, and so wait, were there of, CG elements of it, too? Were there animated elements? I assume there there. There must have been. Be. I, I really, yeah. once something ends like that, uh, <laughs> it sort of erases well, any other details. A little bit of a tangent, Dave, but, you know, there was this big to-do over the July 4th weekend. Um, a video popped online by, couldn't tell you, some schmo, don't know who he is, but it caused quite a stir about how CGI's ruining movies. It's a conversation people go back to all the time. Um, and a lot of VFX artists kind of came out of the woodwork to be like, this is full of shit, um, you know great special effects are all about the convergence of the CG and the practical. I think Mad Max stands stands as a testament to that this summer. Um, And when you're talking about dark rides, I think a lot about it's almost the same thing with the the practical being the foundation, this theatrical experience that still relies on CG. Disney seems to get it right with Haunted Mansion and this updated pan ride um, where where CG is really supplementing this live-action experience, and yet their movies don't seem to reflect that uh, at all, uh, except for <laughs> Tomorrowland, which has a nod to Small World, uh, the, the old... World's Fair version of Small World, which I get... That's a dark ride, right? Uh, you're going around that creepy-ass place. Yeah. All the nations Ta- of the world. Technically. I mean, there's a really um, good example in w- of what you're talking about in Alice in Wonderland, which has the Cheshire Cat, 
and there was always a place where the Cheshire Cat's supposed to smile at you and then disappear line by line. And up until last year, it was a lighting effect, and now they've replaced everything that isn't the cat's head with a digital effect, but you almost can't tell the difference because it's just there to finesse a lighting effect that was already, Hmm. they knew it so well practically that moving it over to digital doesn't feel like anything but enhancing the experience of the ride. I I do wonder if our modern blockbusters could learn a thing or two from dark rides. You know, we often make fun of movies, especially like something like the Transformers, which is feels like a roller coaster uh, and which is not a negative thing necessarily. You, You want it to have acceleration you want it to have the the whooshing effects the the spectacle of whatever is crossing your path as you're going down a roller coaster you want it to feel like a ride at some point but i wonder if these dark rides are actually what we're aiming for i think it's a good place blockbuster i think it's a good place to look because it's a lot of the stuff that people are asking for when they're asking for practical effects which is just know the strengths of you know the weird thing that you made and then know how to light it and how to present it to the audience. And all those things are playing a 3D environment in a dark ride, and that's what we like in our good science fiction and adventure films, too. So I think well, there's just, a lot uh, to learn there. An end note here. I feel like we're in for a troubled time for dark rides and maybe theme parks in general with the advent of virtual reality. I mean, the stuff that I was experiencing at Sundance this year, and it keeps rapidly growing, you know, the the clarity of these videos, the immersion factor of these videos. Why would you go on a dark ride when you could just do it at home from your VR uh, goggles? I mean, it's going to be... It's going to be an interesting duality of the experience because it's like I could see animated things growing up and assume they were real because that's the time that like filmmaking was. And I could see stop motion things and sort of assume they're real. But then like seeing King Kong on the Universal Studios tour was something else entirely. So I wonder if like we're going to go so into virtual reality that like kids have seen, you know, dinosaurs and aliens and combinations of those two things that if you suddenly throw a big practical one in front of them there's still going to be some wonder there but we're gonna have to get through a lot of cg bullshit to find out probably gotta get that indominus rex up in here that's right why isn't he not on the water ride already (laughs) no but really how that will that he will be soon i hope yeah you hope yeah, because that will be the first giant sculpted in real life Indominus Rex head that's that ever made. That is true. Unless they somehow um, project him, if they holo- make him a hologram, if the Tupac technology can bring Indominus Rex to life. Yeah, but like the cool thing about that Jurassic Park water ride is that there's a giant full size yes. T Rex thrusting at you. And you feel you. it, it's near you. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. In honor of Magic Mike XXL, which I hear is fantastic from some very good friends of mine. Nah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought we'd make this mini segment. Uh, it was a Twitter suggestion by a follower that in honor of Magic Mike XXL, we should each pick a movie that we feel the male audience avoided to its own detriment. I don't want to start because I'm not confident in my pick. Is there somebody who na- feel like they nailed this right off the bat? All right, I I have one. All right, um, 
So, so a movie that guys shied away from. Well, we already had one this year, Fifty Shades of Grey. Pretty good movie. Pretty good movie. Um, which I guess guys are not into because of all the, the hype. The hype? Or the, the warnings beforehand. Um, and I, then, you know, I, so I didn't want to pick that. And then I was going to pick Spice World, but I really haven't watched it in a while. Mm-hmm. But I remember enjoying that, ba- that bus chase scene where they like cut to a little model of the UK bus, uh, the double-decker going over, like jumping a bridge. Can't vouch for the rest of that movie. So I'm going to go with Tar Sem's so Spice Magic Magic, his Snow White movie, which everyone thought looked awful. Oh, wait, wait, Tar Sem's what? And even its like, defenders seem to kind of write off as a... Tarsem's Magic Magic. Ah. Yes, his Snow White movie, um, which which its defenders seem to write off even as, like, Kitty Fair. Um, but I, I'm going to go to bat for uh, Tarsem actually has a movie coming out this week called Selfless, which we are not going to talk about. Don't remind this. him or us. Yeah, we're, no one's going to see that movie. So let's talk about his his quality films, like Magic Magic. I really do think it's one of his best films. It's totally fairy tale. It's totally light and fluffy and, and wonderful. And it ends with a Bollywood dance number. And Lily Collins is in it, which means David probably got a, a, a rouse <laughs> at some point during the movie. And everyone loved it. So Magic Magic. I thought that movie was released directly into... Hell, keep shows and porn tubes. Oh, <laughs> c- come on! You should see it. This is exactly the case what? of making. I'm making a Lily Collins joke. I forgot that I was supposed to find her so attractive. I saw Magic Magic with you, and I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> we were giggling. Uh, yeah, it's uh, worth seeing twice before seeing Selfless once. I assure you, out there in movie land, uh, this is a really good question and. My default answer, uh, unfortunately, is probably not eligible, which is Gilmore Girls. I was thinking about Magic Mike XXL earlier today. I just finished! Straight men have not dropped the ball on something they would probably enjoy as much since Gilmore Girls. Uh, But I suppose I have to pick film. I don't know. I mean, I, it's probably too obvious for me to pick any of Sofia Coppola's films, something like Marie Antoinette. I, I, I'm just stuck on the idea. Uh, I think Patch's citing Fifty Shades of Grey is really interesting. I'm stuck on the idea of men not wanting to see representations of female pleasure. Uh, that always. But isn't that to... why they coined the term chick flick? Isn't that a repellent? Like that label was born to. Well, I don't think as, that as people, a warning sign. I, I don't think people identified Fifty Shades of Grey as a chick flick. I mean. It definitely had that soapish, uh, you know, Twilight. It's intrinsically connected to, to Twilight and that quality to it. But, I mean, I think that there's, there's, I would think that it's a different representation of female pleasure than Magic Mike XXL, which uh, I can imagine being a less appealing version or depiction of female pleasure for men. But I don't know. It's, that seems like something that I would think men would want to see. Um, but I, I think that. Let's see. What's a. Uh, what's. Actually, now that you mentioned the Twilight films, the last two I would highly recommend. And I think by that point, people were, were done with that. Out. Especially men. See, this is the weird thing where it's like, I'm not sure. Like, my first. My, the first thing that came out of my head is like, A League of Their Own. And then I'm like, Stupid Dave. That's like a movie about women made so men will see it. Like, stop falling into that goddamn trap. And then I don't know if I keep falling into that goddamn trap 
like I want to say Amelie because it's like foreign, it's a romance, but it's really like the most pleasurable movie ever. But it's like that just me being an idiot for thinking that dudes already don't see Amelie. I think all dudes who go to liberal arts college see Amelie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this boils down to how the movies are sold rather than what they are. Right. Well, David, you are a big, uh, when we were talking about Magic Mike XXL, we talked a little about Step Up, which I think though yes. that franchise as a whole is very much female-oriented, and it's kind of like hot dudes dancing. I mean, I guess there's some hot chicks dancing with the hot dudes, but it does seem geared towards women in a I way. Suppose. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that might be kind of conjecture. I don't have statistics in front of me. Nothing as overwhelming as the exit polls... Uh, for Magic Mike XXL, about the audience being 96% female. Um, Which I Sex in the City like, film can you recommend? <laughs> 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 oh, oh, oh. I mean, I think that I, I, Bridget Jones's Diary has been on TV a lot recently, and I think, uh, but I, it's difficult because, like, I watch that and I'm like, this is a movie that I like. I don't, um, I think all of these movies, I don't necessarily think they're for, I just, I feel like if I saw something and I thought, oh, this is, really only intended for one gender, then I, I wouldn't think much of it to begin with. Because Right, but I guess yeah. the, point, it, you know. the point is that some movies transcend... The, the packaging, the marketing tells you it's for one gender. It's not about the movie itself. It's about the marketing that seems I, to... I'm having trouble... I guess, I guess I'm having trouble coming up with an answer, and I don't know if it's because... It's your own quest- question. <laughs> right, right, right. But I don't know if it's because the question's broken, or if we're, we are, like, three idiots. That, like, well, there's... I don't think the question is broken. I mean, clearly there are movies that male audiences have shied away from that they very well may have enjoyed had they given them a chance. I think we're talking about good movies. I think that you'll the audience for... A Nicholas Sparks premiere uh, for opening weekend might be predominantly female, but men are doing themselves a favor by. There are probably weepy Oscar movies that fit into this category. These kind of like epic. Yeah, or even like something like Pitch, Pitch Perfect Two, right? Just by right. It, Pitch Perfect Two, it, it happened uh, to come out against Mad Max, and you know was also okay. Yeah, um, I yeah, I mean, I think, but I think. Uh, I think this is another interesting conversation to have in regards to Trainwreck um, and how that... A movie we're not talking about yet. No, I mean, how it puts both audiences. I I mean, I think I don't think the question's broken necessarily. I I just think that um, the answers can be tricky because a movie that has merit to anyone uh, will likely, if you dig hard enough, have merit for everybody. Right. but if we're talking purely about the packaging, uh, Magic Mike, Magic Mike XSL is a movie that was that was clearly yeah, sold you to women. Picked the peg. You picked the peg <laughs> no, of the I question. I'm not, I'm not picking that. This is not like my choice that I'm making. Now. I'm just saying. Make a choice. It's, it's unique to uh, the numbers are staggering, and um, the movie was so tall. I mean, th- there was a title card in the trailer that said, "You're welcome." After showing uh, Channing Tatum and Joe Manganiello dancing shirtless, so its audience was well as well defined as the abs of its stars. Um, and I, I don't know. I watched that trailer where he is f- hearing and feeling Genuine's pony in his woodshed, and I, it was like Star Wars to me. And I'm a cisgender heterosexual male, so I, I don't know if I'm properly prepared to answer this question. Well, qualified. maybe we'll pose it to Katie, a real woman, later on when you guys talk about Trainwreck. 
far and away, the most interesting new film of this week is a film that Patches and I saw at Sundance uh, called Tangerine. On our last day, a gem. The last thing I saw at Sundance. Um, Always good to leave a festival on a high note. I was a bit wary of Tangerine because Sean Baker, its writer and director, uh, previously directed a film called Starlet. Before that, he made a film called Prince of Broadway, which is better Starlet, which came out a few years ago, premiered at South By. It's about the relationship between a porn star and an old lady, not a sexual relationship, a friendship. Um, I loathed that film, Something Fierce, and remained gobsmacked that it got the critical adulation that it did. Uh, Tangerine is one of my favorite films of the year, so uh, it just goes to show the virtue of going to a theater with an open mind. But it is also almost, at least on the surface, unrecognizable from Starlet. It is the story of a uh, trans working girl named Cinderella, who's played by Katana Kiki Rodriguez, uh, who is unloosed from a local jail after a 28-day stint and meets at donut time in downtown L.A. with her friend, who is a, a colleague of hers, named Alexandra, who's played by Mia um, Taylor. And uh, Alexandra tells Cinderella, or thinks she already knows, that her pimp boyfriend, Chester, played by James Ransone, uh, is cheating on her with a, uh, a woman, a, a flesh-and-blood woman with a vagina, um, and a cis woman. And thus begins a roaring rampage of revenge as Cinderella tears around this one square block radius or so of uh, downtown Los Angeles in search of uh, her boyfriend, her boyfriend's new man. There are other subplots going on. There's a whole thing about an Armenian (laughs) cab driver. Anyway, there is a lot of running around in high heels along the streets of L.A. I I have frequently described this movie as a Pedro Almodovar remake of Crank which is the, the best I can uh. sum up what it feels like to watch. Uh, and to speak to that aesthetic, I'm, I buried the lead a little bit. The reason why we're talking about it in this segment is because the movie was shot on iPhones. Um, it's a testament to the quality of the film that you can talk about it for so long without bringing this detail up. It is not uh, the central element of its appeal. But the movie was shot on iPhone 5Ss that were outfitted with anamorphic lenses that had, re- that had been made right before they went to production. It looks phenomenal. Um, it's so and, colorful. It's so yeah. bright. It's It was treated in post extensively to have a more saturated look to it. Um, but really, it's it's the look is, I would say, less central to the fluidity of the camera. The fact that you can't feel a camera on the actors. You really get a sense of verisimilitude of being there. Um, it speaks to the fluidity of the storytelling. It's a really beautiful confluence between form and function. Um, and it's I think it's as... Uh, major a step forward as any I can remember seeing as far as technology in films um, because of how, you know, it's shot by Radium Chung, who's the cinematographer who shot it, uh, shot the hell out of it. This is a do not try at home. It's professionally done. But at the same time, it is within the reach of uh, amateurs, of of, um, people out there to make movies that look this good, that can be projected at this resolution, um, that can use their aesthetic in a way that doesn't feel deficient or diminished based on industry standard uh it feels pretty radical to me and and like it's on the cusp of of something new and i guess we just wanted to open the floor to talk about where we stand with that and if uh 
where digital What's so interesting is how far we've seemed to come from the quote-unquote mumblecore days when, you know, these guys were picking up camcorders and it was all grainy and they were just shooting the shit and they wrote these little scripts or improvised them on the fly and they just made movies. This does not feel cut from that cloth, and I think a lot of people at Sundance assumed that, you know, the reason people were seeing Tangerine, we should be honest, is because it was shot on an iPhone. I, I think half the people who wound up seeing it, that's that's the driving Well, that's a good festival pull. That's a good festival hook. You can't... No, it definitely is. It definitely is. But this is not about that technology. I feel like a lot of these early mumblecore films were about, like, we just got a camcorder, and we went to our family's cabin... And we made this movie. I feel like that was the narrative behind Puffy Chair, you know, Jay and Mark Duplass's film that kind of blew up Sundance and South By. And a lot mm. of people were talking about how they just brought their Panasonic camcorder to uh, a house and shot this little, like, hybrid horror talky movie, whatever it was. And um, it was less about, like, the actual substance of the film and more that they just made it, that they accomplished it, that technology enables this new wave of filmmaking. And I guess there's a long history of that. You know, Dogma 95 was the same thing. Like, we're going to shoot on these right. shitty cameras and it's going to look shitty on purpose and, and use natural light. And these camcorders aren't really built for it. And it, it looks kind of like garbage, but that's and that's I, true. That's I, real. I think that I'm glad you brought Dogma up because I feel like, Tangerine was one of the first times, um, maybe Cloverfield or something like that, since Dogma, where it felt like the um, the consumer grade cameras that were being used to shoot it actually enhanced the story that they yeah. were telling. They were inextricable from the story that they were telling, um, and they were not just the best that could be done um, on a budget or on the fly. Right. What about it feels like, more uh, like a choice. It feels like the aesthetic right. of the film. And in Dogma, especially something like um, Celebration, uh, that that feels I, – I feel in the moment because of this grainy, shitty camcorder footage. And it really – like, I'm there. Whereas with a lot of the mumblecore films, it's like, we made this movie for $10 – and this is the reminder throughout it. And we're trying to overcome this a little bit. Tangerine is not that way at all. This is like we're making a distinct aesthetic choice here. And we're going to blow up the colors later in post. But to get the velocity of these trans women running down the streets of L.A., we have to have little tiny camera phones. It's cool. I mean, isn't Michael Mann like the director that keeps trying to bring this in like digital photography into the mainstream and it, he always does yeah, it too michael, early yeah exactly i mean michael mann is a really good example because he i mean you watch something like miami vice you watch something you His... definitely watch something like public enemies and you feel a deficiency i mean you feel like he you feel the sacrifice of what he's made to capture the choice story. doesn't disappear in public enemies no. i don't think which is and nor i mean vital. i think i can I can understand the argument for how that aesthetic may have served the story and bringing the immediacy of digital photography to a period story um, and trying to sort of relive in history. Uh, I think it was woefully unsuccessful. And I say this as someone who will defend black ma black hat to the mats, um, <laughs> I, uh, which where again, you feel the digital cinematography, but they've come a lot further. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that Michael Mann has in his, in the same way that Robert Zemeckis is, uh, too early on all of this technology. Exactly, yeah. Um, and he makes movies that, you know, maybe he is doing other 
filmmakers and studios a service, but his movies are unwatchable as a result of it. Uh, yeah, I think that Tangerine is is one of those things that's at the cross section of just like the right technology at the right time. It's yeah, a right it, story. And it seems like at least I've with Apple's new iPhone six campaign or six S or whatever it is now. Like, they have gigantic billboards of, like, a Vista, and it's like, this was shot on an iPhone. So we've definitely got the consumer grade up to where it's not going to replace, but it's going to be easier for somebody than it would have been for me to get a video camera of that quality, you know, uh, as a consumer, which basically would have been impossible. It would have slung over my shoulder. It would have been a tiny little 15-year-old. But, I mean, like, that sort of access is interesting i'm wondering i'm wondering if it's the technology or if it's like stock like you know if you had if eight millimeter film was plentiful beyond what it was at the like late 70s which you have had a ton of these films just because it was easy to like like you had a ton of mumblecore because it was easy to shoot a bunch of takes or just go for broke definitely would i mean the more formats that are out there the more different choices you can make and that they will make. Is that, what, is that what you meant? I mean, I think so. I'm trying to figure out what's new about uh, stuff like Tangerine and if it's closer to something like, uh, what was that documentary about fishing that uh, had no dialogue? <laughs> Leviathan. Oh, 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 with the is GoPros. It, right. Is it more now about the capability where you have so much stock so it's not we're getting more like leviathan and less like tangerine where tangerine is the technology used artfully and stuff like leviathan is like you're capable now of just compiling hours and hours of footage from a barnacle you know camera like the new gopro that came out this week is the size of a goddamn ice cube like is it the fact that we can now put cameras everywhere and shoot for hours, that's what's going to be expands the story out. Not that we could, you know, slap a old, uh, old world lens on a new world technology. Well, I think well, that's I where the... the way, the way you describe it sounds like the death of, uh, of direction and the rise of coverage, which is maybe not the right takeaway from what you're saying, but well, they, uh, well, I mean, entire film like that, there's <laughs> evidence of that movement. That's uh, right, the Ethan no, Hawke getaway film to a T. No, but I, and also, um, you know, the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab, the people who made Leviathan and uh, Monica Mana and other films like that, uh, they have done a marvelous job of that. But they are, you know, those films. It works for that style. They are very well directed. Um, the place in the camera is is uh, no small part of the equation, um, but I think of like the action sequences in a Marvel movie, and soon they'll just put GoPros everywhere and uh, well, I and think cut together in post. Yeah, yeah. This rise in technology, you start you see a crossroads. I think Tangerine goes a creative route, but there are plenty of films that have always embraced the the potential of technology and indulged too far. They become about the technology. I often think about mm-hmm. Spike Lee's Bamboozled. As a, as a film with too many fucking cameras in play at once. I mean, there are just so many angles. I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact moment. I'm thinking, like, Damon Wayans performs this act at some point, and there must be 18 cameras around him just cutting back and forth all the time. And this fucking mini-DV footage, it looks like garbage. It's trying to do the dogma thing. Uh, but what he really does is is 
he feels enabled to get all the coverage he could possibly want, bring it into the editing room, and wants to make use of all of it. And it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. He just well, I, it's indulges I, too far. And you see all the technology, especially GoPro now is our new thing where techno I mean, action movies are, are way abusing GoPro technology at this point. I I there's a whole other segment and possibly a whole other show defending bamboozled uh, but, uh, <laughs> It'd be awesome. I, we should I, do that at some point. Yeah. Uh, we should. We it's should not a bad movie. More. I just I see it as a technological technology enabled to a, to a, a death degree. <laughs> uh, well, we have guests on to discuss bamboozled. I guess um, it's like if Tangerine is technology used well, we already know that like you know a good filmmaker with direction and know how can make a good film. So I guess as you guys, you've seen it. Now that you've seen it and digested the hook, did Tangerine need to be shot on an iPhone? Is like that intimacy yeah. that important to it? Yes, I don't. I mean, I can't speak for the filmmakers, but um, and I'm sure they've answered this question one way or another in interviews that I have not uh, conducted or read. But I feel like this film would not have been made if not for the technology that uh, empowered it to be made this way. Um, I think that they really went hand in hand. I don't think that there was ever the conversation to shoot it in a more conventional means. I don't think they could have shot where they did at the speed in which they did with the fluidity with which they did um, with a lumbering red camera or something like that. So that's good because like then what we're talking about is like, yeah, we have GoPros that we could strap onto people and send in the combat. It just sort of matters what sort of cinematic combat you're sending them into. Well, so that's what I think's interesting about Tangerine. This feels like a small movie with a true vision that employs technology to its better creative good, which I don't see a lot of in big movies that seem to have unlimited amounts of cash. Like, is there is there technology outside of this movie in, in bigger movies are people pushing the envelope with technology where else is film technology going where is it driving story and is it working i mean i haven't seen a film in a long time since i mean with tangerine being a standout kind of milestone in my opinion where i, I feel technology pushing narrative and, and and allowing things to open up allow new voices to enter and new types of filmmaking to emerge uh i don't know if i see technology doing that right now and not since the the rise of mumblecore perhaps or even uh, maybe not on the 2D cinema screen, but I think Patches, you and I both had VR experiences at film festivals this year, and I am super psyched about Google's jump camera, which takes like 18 GoPros and stitches them together, which means we're going to be able to shoot VR in our home, which means it's going to open it up to filmmakers to yeah, know great. what to do Just with what it. Yeah, what I need. Me to uh, film VR in my home. Stupid yeah, well, cat tricks. Well, I mean, not you, but VR like... Helmet. Uh, the VR experience I did was set in a haunted hospital, and they actually shot it by wheeling a wheelchair through an abandoned hospital. And they had to build, you know, their own GoPro rig to like stitch together. And you know, that person happened to have a good idea and to execute. But maybe you have a great idea for a VR film, and finally, this technology is going to allow you to execute it. I but I mean, like, I don't. Idea. I mean, it's going to be hard, especially with uh, visual effects technology becoming more commonplace and easier to buy right out of the box as a consumer to 
I feel like get away from like uh, visual effects spamming and you know mainstream what movies. The film world needs, and this might be out there, and I would urge our listeners to to inform me or to tweet at us and for retweets because people should know about this. But yeah, uh, the other week. I, I think I mentioned this in our quarter quell that I helped mentor these two girls who made their first film. They're in high school, and we shot it with a little camera, you know, a DSLR or whatever. It looked amazing. But, you know, sound is such a problem these days. The way we record sound, the amount of sound that you can get, what you can play within the editing room. And sound became our, our greatest hurdle, as it is for a lot of indie filmmakers, as it is for fucking big-time filmmakers, too. Like, getting real sound that feels real, that doesn't just seem like slapped on ADR. Uh, you see it in big movies. It sucks. Uh, but I wonder if there's fil- there's sound technology out there that's emerging in parallel to, to film technology that uh i mean obviously something with tangerine they were running around so much and it sounds great too there's probably a lot of adr in that film because they're on the streets of la but i don't know if there's something out there that's emerging right now that could compete or that can live up to all this um, crazy evolution in, in visual technology i'd be interested to hear more yeah and i think we're definitely in a good place or in definitely in a good position to hear about that because I, I i know that the stuff i've discovered while podcasting seems like in that direction like you know the lever levelator program we use is basically like an automatic white noise remover and not that we should be making these things easy on people but there's evidence that you know we need the, the gopro sound that's what i'm saying oh yeah like a, we need a new talk boy from home alone 2 is what you're saying but like yes, a good i one. need a very tiny talk boy that i can strap onto my neck while i uh jump off the tallest building in dubai and get some amazing 4K sound, and then I can slow it down and make it sound like this. Yeah. I I think 4K sound would be... You might win a Pulitzer (laughs) for that. (laughs) A Pulitzer. Perfect. I always wanted one. week's fighting in the war room uh is there a review this week guys no i don't think so but they we shouldn't we tangerine is really the movie we're talking about we are that's true well everybody should check out tangerine there might be a thought bubble because comic-con is this week so i'm sure we'll be getting some sort of weird news uh i told uh, you i wanted to talk about comic-con you didn't you ignored me so who knows I mean, I get a lot of emails. Maybe we'll do a Comic-Con wrap-up, especially, actually, if Patches, you're into it, and Joanna of course I'm into it. is off doing, uh, you know, Vanity Fair things. Well, yeah, she's actually at Comic-Con, so she may not be around. We'll follow the feed at fightinginthewarroom.com to check out what we do uh, else this week. But until then, let's tell the people who you are and where we can find more of your stuff on the internet. Yes, I am Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer for Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. Patches, and you can find us on fightinginthewarroom.com. All the episodes are there. You can share them. You can comment on them. You can share them again. You can probably find a link to iTunes where you can review the goddamn podcast. No, I'm sorry. I'm very sensitive on this issue. Fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor of Large Little White Lies magazine. I also just want to hold surprise for photoshopping 
uh, on Apple Preview, the volcano from lava into a naked selfie of Justin Bieber. Very, uh, congratulations on, on that Pulitzer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and you can find all of us together uh, doing more productive things on Facebook at Fighting the War I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name D-A-7-E, and I write about geeky things like Star Wars and Marvel Comics at geek.com, latino-review.com, and forbes.com. Storm of spoilers, listeners. There are a lot of you. Some of you are probably listening to this show. Our t-shirts are now capable of being ordered at fightinginthewarroom.com slash gotspoilers. Last year's off-season t-shirts were a big hit, but were a limited time sale, and many people got back to me being like, oh, I want a t-shirt, and I didn't get it. Well, don't do that again this season. Fightinginthewarroom.com slash gotspoilers for your Storm of Spoilers off-season t-shirts to tell people that you listen to podcasts and also have very valid opinions about them. Uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter at FITWR, the initials of the show Fighting in the War Room, where you can answer this question. In honor of True Detective Season 2 being almost halfway over, who would you replace Vince Vaughn with? Please answer, even though we don't have a show where we're necessarily be reading your answers, because I am super interested, because he's not doing it for me. Will that change? Who knows? We'll see you again on Fighting in the War Room. Her give me open my sugar and she go hard for me. Even take a charge from it If the coppers caught us riding To get a tray of fruit and a pack of 1.5s And I'm all the way on them papers She all the way on my team We burn it down like California trees in the breeze She's still name's Tangerine Damn the American dream She all about a fucking cream Shake it like a tambourine 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 Said her name was Billie Jean Said she wanna show me things I pulled out a stack of cream Shake it like a tambourine Shake, 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 shake,